All right, if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, we're going to go ahead and look at this passage. Uh, We're looking at Acts 13. Some of you recall that we had passed over Acts 13, 1 through 4, and kept moving on and wanted to come back to this passage for this day, for this ordination day. Uh, I was talking to Jeremy this week, and I had these high aspirations. I said, you know, I think I I could do like a a 15-minute exposition of this passage. And he goes, yeah, right. He was right. I think it's going to be a little longer than 15 minutes, but we will stop at a certain time that leaves plenty of time for the ordination. So I'm going to put my watch right here. See, we go with the spontaneity of the Holy Spirit. We can stop at any time. All right. Uh, During the 1930s, sometimes during the 1930s, uh, before the great World War II, the Times in London uh, is a major newspaper. It invited several eminent writers to respond and write in that they would publish and put in the paper this question. What is wrong with the world today? Isn't that intriguing? Have several eminent scholars and writers, people that they had selected to actually give their contribution on a page in the paper that everyone would read on what's wrong with the world today. Well, one of those eminent writers was G.K. Chesterton. He wrote his response in the form of a letter, and this is what it said. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I was talking with one of you a couple of weeks ago, and you said, you know, when I walk into my home... I should be mindful that what is wrong with my family is about to walk through the door. Now, that perspective of yourself changes everything, doesn't it? What if we all were to walk into Redeemer, walk into this church or the local church that you're a member of, and we were to say, what's wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the church today? And we all, in our hearts, said, I am. It would change everything. What changes, or what would that look like if we all really believed it? Acts 13, 1 through 4, puts visibly and publicly on display what it really looks like if all of us, a group of us, a local church of us really did believe deep down in our heart, in our heart, in our head, everything we confess that what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with the church is me. Let's look at it together. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Now there were and the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. Here they are. There's listed five of them. Now, what I want you to don't get, don't get distracted like, what does a prophet mean? What does a teacher mean? All five of these people are called prophets and teachers, not three are prophets, two are teachers. That word prophets and teachers has a same circular or field of meaning. The differences are very, very few, so we don't even need to highlight them, okay? Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Remember when I walked down and I said, Have called them. 
That's that perfect tense. The Holy Spirit already called these guys. But notice that the Holy Spirit now is working through the normal means of the organized church to make his calling known to all of us. So sometimes we get so super spiritual, we think the Holy Spirit's doing something apart from ordinary appointed means that he set up. Kind of bypasses them because if he was to do that, that's just too ritualistic and rigid. Now he set it up. Okay? Now, where were we? Three. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, I want to add four because this is an interesting description. They laid their hands on them and sent them off, but just so we, we don't miss it, verse four is added, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit used the church or the laying on of human hands that was seen from one perspective. They're sending them out, but the real perspective is the Holy Spirit sent them out. The Holy Spirit called them, okay? They went down to Seleucia. From there they arrived and sailed to Cyprus. So what does someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit do? What does a church do when it's filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, let's just keep reading. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what we're going to look at today. We thank you for the filling, the ongoing, energizing presence of the Holy Spirit. And we ask even now, we we admit that we are deeply needy. We admit that we are desperate people, that what is wrong with the church, what is wrong with the world is us. It takes you. It takes sheer grace. So even now, Lord, would you display and manifest and make known even more to us, push into our hearts the wonders of your grace by giving us even now the filling and the enablement of the gift of your Holy Spirit. I ask that for myself. I ask that for this voice. And I ask that for all of us including myself, that's hearing this word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The early church in Antioch. That's in modern what? Turkey. Good, thank you. In Acts, it got started right after Stephen's stoning. So this church got started right after Stephen's stoning. What Stephen's stoning did was a providential push to get the gospel beyond that first frontier of just Jerusalem and to move out into the second frontier of Judea and Samaria and eventually the final frontier of the ends of the earth, the Gentile world. I want you to see this. Look at 1119. You can see it really clearly. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, what? Antioch. Now, when the gospel went out to Antioch, There were some from the Isle of Cyprus and Cyrene that went up there and started speaking to the Gentiles. And so what happened in Antioch is what hasn't happened anywhere in the church yet. This is a multiracial, multicultural church. And it's exploding with growth. 
I mean, they're preaching and teaching the word and the language that's used throughout in Acts, and particularly in this Acts, is the language that goes all the way back to initial creation when God said to all the creatures he created, what did he say? Be fruitful and multiply. Extend my glory over all the world like the waters cover the sea. Even Habakkuk brings that up. And that language is borrowed and infused into this passage while the church is exploding. It's like the creation command is finally being fulfilled. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord is spreading like the waters cover the sea. They're preaching and the church is being built, explosion and growth. And it's happening so much that the report of it trickles down to Jerusalem. It probably came not in a trickle, but in a gusher. And the church of Jerusalem's like, this is phenomenal what's going on up there. So they sent one of their trusted, trusted people up there. And that was Barnabas. Now Barnabas goes up there, and it literally says that he is so overwhelmed with the grace of God that in his heart he is glad. I mean, that's just a great word. In his heart he is glad over what he's seen. Now, he assesses the situation very, very quickly. And in assessing the situation, he knows what is the number one priority in any Christian church. And so what he does is he goes and he gets a gifted praise band, and they start singing contemporary Christian music. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that. I got a couple more. Please bear with me. He... he, uh, started community groups to make the big church feel small. Now, I'm, please don't hear me. I'm not saying this stuff is wrong. I'm saying he goes up and he sees what's taking place and he says, this is the number one priority of the church and this is what I'm going to do. I know what this church needs. Does he start a, a cell group ministry? No. Does he get a praise band together? No. Does he start political action teams to reshape racist Roman policies around Israel's judicial laws? No. Does he push to transform Roman culture? You know, start art ministries and and architecture ministries and music ministries and classical higher education ministries. Oh, they already had all that stuff, didn't they? The Greco-Roman world was the birthplace of Western civilization. All that stuff that a lot of us get caught up in was actually being done by unbelievers before Christians got on the scene. Yikes. That kind of changes views of culture stuff, doesn't it? What does he do? Look at Acts 11, 25 through 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught. The number one priority of the church is teaching. And that's not just any teaching. That's what's called apostolic teaching. He got an apostle. Apostolic teaching is the stuff we have in the Scriptures, the stuff we have in our hands. Apostolic teaching centers on a storyline of Jesus, his worth and his work. True apostolic teaching is always connecting. It's either either running up to Jesus or it's flowing out of Jesus. But if Jesus is missing from the teaching, it's not apostolic teaching. It's dry, boring, 
passing on information kind of teaching. Okay? So perhaps, perhaps, and I just suggest this, perhaps teaching is not the church's top priority today because we're not engaged in apostolic teaching. And our view of teaching might be we're kind of passing on information instead of a divine encounter with God happening in teaching. Instead of God actually coming down in teaching. Jesus actually showing up in teaching and lives changing on the spot. Now, because the number one priority for any church is teaching, Barnabas went to get the best. He got Saul. Now, don't miss the irony of this. God takes the greatest legalist of the day and calls him to preach sheer grace to unbelievers. That's fascinating. So by the time we get to Acts 13, at least a year has gone by of this kind of teaching in Antioch. So when we show up in verses 1 through 4, it's a year's gone by. The context now is the final frontier of the gospel is about to be crossed. The final frontier of the gospel is about to take place. The Gentile world is about to be exploded moved into with the power of God, God breaking in through his glory and grace in Christ. That's about to happen, okay? So that's the context. So when we get to this context, here's our point. In that context, now remember, those of you that are joining us, Acts 1-8, way at the beginning, gives us the outline or the thesis statement for the whole book, you English majors. The thesis statement's right there. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest parts of the earth. 13, 1 through 4, is the context of that last frontier beginning to happen. So the point in here is this. Antioch is a preserved picture of what a spirit-filled church looks like. Now, it's a preserved picture of what a spirit-filled church looks like for every church in every generation, and every culture to push themselves closer and closer and closer to. It's preserved for us to see, to embrace it, to ask God to do that kind of thing, to actually imitate it, okay? Now, I know some of you, though, are very concerned about a preserved picture of the church, not because you want to embrace it, but because you want to avoid at all costs. So I'd just like to speak to you for a moment, okay? In other words, the church to you is scary. Possibly you agree with Christopher Hitchens, who is the author of God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. All right? In there, he has a chapter called Religion Kills. In this chapter, he marks out many accounts of religious-driven violence. And he lists a lot of Bs. Belfast, Beirut, Bombay, Belgrade, Bethlehem, and Baghdad, just as a snippet. And he quotes, he says this in one of these chapters. He says, religion is not unlike racism. One version of it inspires and provokes the other. Religion has been an enormous multiplier of tribal suspicion and violence. Now, I've got two responses to you, very brief My first response is, you're right. You are right. In other words, religion, 
which is now building your life around performing or achieving a certain teaching, idea, concept to gain moral improvement, to be on the right side, to connect to God and His blessings, religion, building your life around performing and achieving a certain kind of teaching that, that gives you an identity and gives you moral improvement and connects you to God and His blessing, building your life around something like that always leads to feelings of superiority and exercises of oppression and exclusion and abuse to those who don't have those same things. I said it. In other words, other people who don't build their life around achieving and performing a certain teaching as their identity, as their being in the right, as they're gaining moral improvement, as them connecting to God, you look down on them. And when you get a bunch of us together who are performing and achieving our life, building our life around the same kind of teaching, you get Shintoism in World War II and the war in the Pacific. You get the Inquisitions. You get the Crusades. You get global Islamic terrorism. You get nationalistic Hinduism burning churches and mosques. Do you see what I'm saying? My second response is this, and it comes from Keller and McGrath. Keller's a pastor in New York. McGrath's a professor and theologian. They put it this way. When the idea of God is gone, a society will transcendentalize something else. Some other concept, some other idea to appear morally and spiritually superior. So in other words, my second response is this. Even though religion tends to do that, irreligion does it too. The greatest violence and the greatest bloodshed in the 20th century has come from Rejecting religion ideas, Marxism. Rejecting a preserved picture of the state, of the church, and replacing it with the state. In other words, if it's not a religious idea that we build our life around, performing and achieving it, it's teaching, we'll take an irreligious one. We'll make it the state, Marxism, and absolutize the state. If we're Nazis, we'll say it's race and blood. And of course, this points to something that moves beyond that the real culprit and the real problem is not in religious ideas and is not in irreligious ideas, that the real culprit lies deeply in the human heart. Okay? All right, let's move on. Now, when we get to this passage, what we have is a preserved picture of a spirit-filled church. Well, what does a spirit-filled church look like? I want to make several quick snapshots of what it looks like and end with an application for us. Now, in the snapshots, of course, there's application. It drips with application, but I'm going to focus it particularly to us in light of what we're doing today, okay? Now, the quick snapshots. Here we are. We're looking at what a spirit-filled church looks like. 
preserved picture of that? Well, the first one is, we touched on earlier, a spirit-filled church is a teaching church. Look at verse 1. Now, there were those in the church at Antioch, and he lists them all. This is a very interesting introduction. Why would you do that? Why would Luke do that? Why would he begin that way? Now, in the church, there were five prophets and teachers. And then move on to the real, the real focal point of the passage, right? Well, why would you do that? The point is that Paul's teaching produced more teaching. After a year of teaching, there's not just new hearers, there are new teachers. There are now five teachers in this church. And what you get is this, is that in this passage where the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work, in this passage where the Holy Spirit is filling everybody, in this passage where the Holy Spirit is dynamically involved in the church, it's in the context of teaching. In other words, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with biblical teaching. The Holy Spirit and its filling presence is tied to, married to, teaching the Word of God. And so this passage sets us up by saying, look, teaching is the air that this church breathes, teaching of the apostolic glories and grace of Christ, the witnesses to that, is that teaching goes out, the Holy Spirit's presence is filling and moving powerfully at work in people's lives. So Paul's teachings multiplied, it's fruitful. And Luke wants you to see that it produced a teaching church, okay? And again, we could focus on the fact that these five teachers are, are different races and cultures. The first two are from Africa. The first one, most scholars think it's Cyrene, is the one that was constricted to carry Jesus' cross. That that Simeon is him. The one that actually carried Jesus' cross is one of the teachers in Antioch. The one Lucius... Most scholars think he comes from verse 20, that he actually came from the Isle of Cyrene or North Africa. And so he's a North African. And then you got an interesting, he's just kind of give you an insight into what kind of teachers end up teaching. You get an insight, you got this boy that grew up with Herod, the one that killed John the Baptist and the one that was part of Jesus' uh, death. It literally says in the text, a bond slave or an adopted son, not just a member of the court. What that means is these two children grew up together. One became Herod. One became a teacher of Christ. Man. Talk about grace. And then, of course, you got Barnabas from Cyprus. Then you got a Pharisee named Saul. This is the first church staff in Antioch. And so what we need to get is this. Here's the application. Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Church, do we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Answer, be filled with teaching. Be filled with the Word of God. All right, second snapshot. Spirit-filled church is a worshiping church. Verse 2, while they were worshiping. Oh, I love grammar, don't you? I mean, wow, this is a temporal participle. Liza, you love that, don't you? A temporal participle. While they're worshiping, the Holy Spirit is unleashed. It's giving you when it happened. The context is so key. While they're worshiping, the Holy Spirit is empowering, filling, working, and moving. 
The point is this. It wasn't while it was a personal quiet time. Though that happens. But isn't it interesting? Throughout the book of Acts, you're never given Paul's personal quiet time. You're given over and over again church quiet times, church worship services, where we get together and we pray together. We fast together. We sing together. We take the sacraments together. We hear the word preached and taught together. We cry out to God together. In desperation, we confess our sins to God together. In that context, the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work. The ancient... I'm blowing everybody's minds here. I know. I'm agreeing with a guy that's saying... Religion is the killer of everything. And now I'm saying that the ancient Celts had it right about their carns and their superstitious beliefs about sunrises and sunsets. I know, drag me away. You know why? You know what they believed about their carns? They build these rock things. Some of them you could enter into, some of them was just a pillar. They made these carns because they believed they were portholes or entryways into the netherworld. In other words, the kingdom of another world and the kingdom they were a part of touched in a carn. Oh, when they talked about sunsets and they talked about sunrises, it was a time between times, right? It's neither nights, neither day. It's a time between times. It's not all night. And it's not day, it's a, another time where two times collide and touch. Two worlds come together. Brothers and sisters, what the scriptures show over and over again is that public worship is a porthole to a whole other world. It's two kingdoms colliding. God actually breaking in, God actually intruding, the Holy Spirit set loose and unleashed and powerfully filling and moving and at work in this world and in our life. Okay? So a spirit-filled church is a worshiping church. Let's keep going. Spirit-filled church, this one will get you. I know you're going to hang on your seat. Is an organized church. You ready? This is a very exciting one. It's the one that we all love to hear about. The American church gets the organic church. I talked about that earlier, but the American church has forgotten the organized church. You look at verses 2 through 3, what's happening here. This is an ordination service to special offices. This is not an organic, normal, ordinary part of the church. This is a extraordinary. And when you go throughout the rest of the Bible, you've got to fill it in a little bit, and you'll see that the special ordination service or this special calling is that God has set aside special offices that are visible and you can see and they're ordainable and you can touch and you can talk to them. They're special offices that the Holy Spirit set apart called elders and deacons. Elders are spiritual shepherds. They oversee the vision of the church. They shepherd hearts in the church. An elder, if he has a tool belt, his tool belt is teaching the Word of God. His other tool is prayer. His other tool is life on life. The deacons, they're servants of the church. 
you got shepherds and you got servants. If, if elders fly at 30,000 feet, deacons are on the ground. They're the, the ground troops. They get things done. If they had a tool belt, what they're doing is they're implementing the vision of the church. They're implementing the ministry and the mercy of the church. If they had tools in their tool belt, which they do, it would be a servant's heart. It would be coaching, helping, equipping, and gathering all of us to be involved in the church, in the life of the church. It would be administration. It would be hard work. Rolling up your sleeves, getting it done. That's what a deacon would be. All I want to do is I want to say one last comment because I've got to move on. And this is not going to be very popular. It's certainly not popular today. You need the church organized. To be disconnected from the organized church in a consistent, persistent, negligent way is to quench the Holy Spirit in your life. Do we really believe that? No, I've got the organic church. It's me and Jesus in my home, reading my Bible. That's all I need. And God says, no. Church is that. Church is also organized. It, it revolves around public worship. It revolves around the offices that the Holy Spirit set up because it's his idea. And all the official ministries of the church that the officers and the church set forward... That's the organized part of the church. And the Holy Spirit is at work there. And if we're not there, we're missing out on what he's doing. And we actually get in the way of what he's doing in our life. Okay? Last one. Got to move. Sending church. This is missional. This is extending. This is the one we all say, I know, I know. We got to go reach the world. We got to go talk to our neighbors. I got to plant churches. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Maybe we can look at it a different way. Maybe not like you gotta, but maybe like here, you wanna. In other words, ascending church is not only God's idea, it's his heart beat. Look at the verse. Verse 2, 3. Actually, in verse 3. 2, 2, 2. The Holy Spirit said. That's how it begins. The Holy Spirit said. Then what does he said? Set apart for me. Okay. What? For the work I've called them. Look at verse 4. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. This is not only the Holy Spirit's idea. This is the Holy Spirit's passion. To reach the lost is to have God's heart. It's to be a part of what he's doing. And to nod is to get in the way of what he's doing. So one commentary puts it this way, and I'll put my little twist on it. They were so full of gospel teaching in this church, so full of the Holy Spirit in this church, they knew that God had called Paul to to start a mission to build the church to the Gentiles. So they're fasting and praying and seeking God, when are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? And most importantly... Oh, God, please let us be a part of it. Okay. End here. The catch in this whole passage, obviously, if this is a picture of the Spirit-filled church, the catch is what? 
You need the Holy Spirit to be this kind of church. Fooled you, didn't I? I mean, we need the Holy Spirit to be a teaching church, to be a worshiping church, to be a lively, involved, organized church, to be a sending church. So how do you get the Holy Spirit? And I want to say this as clearly as possible. It's not as complicated as we make it today. It's not a lot of boogie dust and a lot of, I don't know, but it looks like it's happening over there. The answer first is right there, by teaching, worshiping, lively involvement in the organized church, and by sending. That's how you get filled. Broadly, narrowly, it's this. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the sheer grace of Jesus. This is how the Puritans put it. In one of their prayers in Valley of Vision, they say this, Teach me to find and know the fullness of the Spirit only in Jesus. You are filled with the Holy Spirit when you are filled with Jesus. You are filled with the Holy Spirit when you are filled up with. Your heart is impacted with the worth and work of Jesus for you. Sheer grace. And when that grips you, you begin to be empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Take an example, shall we? Here's the example. The sliver of splendor behind this passage of filling is one being emptied so you can be filled. In other words, God emptied Jesus, spilled every last drop of his life so that it all ran out. So he could fill you with his life, his spirit. To not be emptied by God is sheer grace. To not have your life poured out, every last drop physically poured out, every last drop spiritually poured out, wasted on the ground, no one caring, no one even giving it a look. No one having pity on you. Because Jesus had it done for you. The fact that he gives you life and gives you his spirit and fills you up is because he emptied Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, when that grips you in the slices of real life, Relational stuff, conflicts, participating in the life of the church, feeding on it in your vocation, recognizing it in your spiritual depressions. You get filled with the Holy Spirit. When you neglect that stuff, when you neglect the sheer grace of God, you don't understand it, you forget it, you're not taught it, you're not listening to it. It's not going to be found in your own mind and your own heart. You've got to hear it from the outside. When we forget it and neglect it and don't believe it in slices of life, we quench the Holy Spirit. Okay. So what would it look like? What would it look like if all of us were to grow by coming to church, recognizing what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with the church, 
is me. You know what happens? You'll be desperate for sheer grace. You'll be dependent on sheer grace. You will delight in sheer grace. In God emptying his son so you can be filled with life and filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen.